Okay, go ahead and make your way back to your seats, if you don't mind. Again, happy Mother's Day. Glad that you're here with us. Family, friends, I didn't acknowledge family that was here. Thank you so much for being with us. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning as we continue our series uh, before we do that, I just want to say that my casualness here this morning, the uh, t-shirt is in honor of uh, uh, sending our kids to camp. You can order one of these shirts out at the Getting Connected, or the, excuse me, uh, what is it called? <laughs> the Connection Center, thank you. The Connection Center out there, the uh, booth, right, as you uh, walk in out there in the lobby. You can order these shirts. They have other styles as well, but the money from the sale of these t-shirts help us send kids to camp. So you can make a donation uh, to scholarship a student for camp if you would like. Our giving baskets are up here as well, in the, as, well as in the back. That's where your offerings and uh, any camp scholarships you want to donate above and beyond that. Uh, but if you'd like to order a shirt, go out there to the Connection Center. We changed the name, so I'm slow here. Uh, so be sure and do that. So that's my excuse for the, for the casualness this morning, okay? It's all for the children. Um, Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be uh, this morning. Yes, we have already made it to chapter 2 after about seven weeks. Can you believe that? There's a professor, a longtime professor at Dallas Seminary named uh, Prof. Howard Hendricks. Dr. Howard Hendricks uh, had an impact on many of us and many students through his teaching over uh, 50 years at Dallas Seminary. And Prof. Hendricks, one of the things that he would love to tell his students that would come through the seminary preparing to be pastors, he would often say, folks, when you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll screw it up. <laughs> Meaning there are no perfect churches. There's no such thing as a perfect church. Only imperfect churches filled with imperfect people, worshiping a perfect Savior, right? There's no such thing as a perfect church. They're all imperfect. But having said that, there are some that are better than others. And as we read the book of Philippians, as we study the book of Philippians, we find a great church. We find a really good church. And you can argue, actually, some have, that the church of Philippi was Paul's favorite it was his favorite church. He, he loves this church. He founded this church with Timothy uh, about 10 years before he writes this letter. We see in the book of Philippians his deep love for this church. In uh, verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He has said later in chapter 1, he says, man, though I am imprisoned, Though I am chained to a Roman guard, uh, I really wanted, I desire to be with God. I desire to depart from this life, but I want to stay on in ministry. Why? According to verse 25, for you, for your joy and progress in the gospel. He loved this church, and it was a great church, but it wasn't a perfect church. And we see as we look through the book some hints of what some of the rising, uh, surfacing issues in this church was, and that is uh, the issue of disunity, the issue of factions. And we see that clearly as we get on into chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul is going to gently call out two women in this church and say, hey, get along. Put your bickering behind you. Get along. Agree in the Lord. And we've kind of seen hints of a rising disunity in the church. The church has always had problems because the church has always had imperfect people, right? 
We see some hints of this disunity, these uh, factions rising uh, last week or two weeks ago in chapter 1. If you look in verse 27, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. Verse 27 says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He wants them to be one, and you're going to see that exact language from verse 27 repeated again in our verses here in chapter 2 this morning. Unity, oneness is a big deal to God. It's a big deal for the church. In fact, it's one of the main things that Jesus prayed for in his prayer in John chapter 17. Uh, it's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where we get this intimate look into Jesus' prayer to the Father. And one of the things he prays in John chapter 17 multiple times is that the church would be one that the church would be unified. He wants us to live in harmony, in accord with one mind, as he says in this passage, in unity. The unity of our church, the unity of the church is a big deal, and it's a big deal to Jesus. So we find that this morning as we continue on. I want us to begin looking this morning at just the first two verses. In the first two verses, we see what he calls for, which is unity. Uh, verses 1 and 2, join me. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see there the repetition of one, have the same mind. And the motivation for this is if there is any encouragement in Christ... And the reason he uses if here in the original language, in the Greek here, this if is called a first-class condition. And it's called a condition of fact. It's not a possibility. It's actually a statement of fact. It's a rhetorical device that he's using. He's saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, then be unified be one. If you've experienced any love from God, if you have fellowship or participation with the Spirit, then be unified because of what you have in Christ. Live together in Christ in unity. That's his logic. That's his argument. Uh, the NASB, the New American Standard, uh, translates these two verses like this. Therefore if, there is, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and look at how they translate the last part there, intent on one purpose. Intent on one purpose, unified. Does this, does this mean that we all like the same things, that we all look alike, that we all share the same preferences? No. But he's saying as a body, as, as in your marriage or in your church, there's to be a oneness and a unity and intention on one purpose. That purpose being, as Paul said in chapter 1, to honor Christ in all things, whether life or death. Intent on one purpose, united in one mind in the same mind, having the same love, being in harmony. I don't uh, quote it often, but uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible, the New Testament, the message, you've probably heard uh, of the message perhaps. He paraphrases these verses like this. I think this is so good. Listen to the message here. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if His love has made any difference in your life, 
If being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Isn't that great? Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourself Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Isn't that beautiful? This picture of unity, this picture of oneness that we are to have, particularly as a church. The result of that unity, if it takes place, if it's rich, if there's this deep-spirited friendship that he talks about, the results of that is, as Paul says, according to verse 2, that it's going to complete my joy. He's, the apostle's going to get great joy by their obedience in unity. Now, we, we often think, and rightly so, that the fruit of the Spirit, joy, is something that comes from the Spirit. Love, joy, that comes from the Spirit. But Paul is saying here, as he said elsewhere earlier in the letter, that, that joy is also a result of our relationship with one another in the body of Christ. He says, if you guys will get along, if you guys will be unified, it will bring me joy. And man, don't you know that when people are unified, it does bring a joy as a pastor when there's strife, when there's disunity, when there's factions, when there's arguments, it saps you of joy. But when people are loving each other, when people are caring for those that are in the hospital, when people are coming alongside people, one another in difficult marriages and doing life together, when there's unity, it it brings a joy. He says, complete my joy by being unified as you are. He said he, would, he wanted to stay on, as I said earlier in verse 25. If you look back, chapter 1, verse 25, you see that he wanted their joy, and their joy was going to come by him continuing in ministry, staying on in this life. 125 says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. When someone ministers to you, when someone says, I'm praying for you this week, fills you with joy, doesn't it? It helps you strive for the faith. It helps you persevere in tough times. Folks, people among us in this room right now, people are struggling. People are persevering in life, persevering in parenting. Sometimes you're just depleted of strength and the joy that we can give one another through prayer and through unity and caring for one another is a real possibility. The truth is, people will always be your greatest joy and your biggest burden. People will always be your greatest joy and also your biggest burden. That's certainly true as a parent, right? You, I mean, your, your kids do something right. You're filled with joy for them. They, they stand up to speak or something, and you're, you're proud of them. They accomplish something at school. They're the student of the month or whatever. You're filled with joy. But you know also when your kids do something wrong, when they go down a path that you're not liking, you know that your burden, your greatest burden is for them. Your love pours out even more because of their wandering, Right? People will always be your greatest joy and sometimes simultaneously your biggest burden. Paul says, because of what you have in Christ, be unified. Live together in oneness. Put away your pettiness. Put away your preferences and get along. How do you do that? 
Well, I think he's going to give us some direct words as he goes on to explain it here in verses 3 and 4. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me again. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. How easy is that? (laughs) Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. I think the key word here in these two verses is humility. Humility. Thinking rightly of yourself, looking out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. That takes a humility Augustine was one of the early church uh, fathers. Augustine was once asked, what are the key virtues of the Christian life? And Augustine answered, humility, humility, humility. Putting others ahead of yourselves, it's easy to read, isn't it? It's pretty hard to do. And in fact, everything in our culture around us says quite the opposite. Not put others ahead of yourself, but put yourself ahead. Have it your way. Assert your rights personally. Get ahead. Promote yourself. Advance yourself. Accumulate for yourself. More for you, myself, me, myself, and I, right? It's completely the opposite of what our nature wants and what our culture says. The culture would say, get ahead. Go for more. Assert yourself. And the scripture would tell us to be great You have to descend down. You have to descend to greatness. You have to look out for others more important than yourself. Man, it's easy to stand up here and say that. It's pretty hard to do that, isn't it? Jesus said, if anyone wants to be great among you, he must first be a servant. A servant. That's hard. But can you imagine, friends, can you imagine if we would put into action verses 3 and 4 in our marriages, in our church, what would a marriage look like if both spouse did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counted others as more significant than ourselves? What if in a marriage or in a church, according to verse 4, let each of us look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others? Man, this, this world that we live in, it is fast. It is busy. The pace is crazy. And we are running past each other all the time. I know because I'm in it. But I also know what my heart wants. I know what each heart in this room wants is that at some level deep in our heart, we want a deep connection with God and deep connection with other people. And you know how we get there? In humility, serving one another. In humility, saying, how can I serve you? I prayed for you this week. How did that job interview go? I noticed that you look tired can I take the kids for you? Yes, you can take the kids for me. (laughs) Looking out for the interests of others. I believe every person in this room, you want to be deeply connected to other people, but you know what? It's fast, you're busy, but we want someone to say, hey, how are you really doing? 
How's, how's marriage really going? You look tired. Is everything okay? So the question I want us to ask you, want us to a- ask ourselves this morning is, what's your interest rate? He says, be interested in the needs of others. What's your interest rate? I'm not talking about the interest rate on your mortgage. I'm talking about your interest rate in other people. How concerned are you about others? What percentage, if you will, of your time, your prayers, your energies are about serving other people versus yourself? You got a 4% interest rate? Hey, that's pretty good on your mortgage. It's pretty lousy if that's your interest rate in other people. Do you notice your neighbors? Do you notice when the people in your community group are struggling? Do you send them a text? Do you reach out? Do you invite anyone over to your house to have deeper conversation and a slow down the pace of life? What would a marriage look like? What would a community group look like? What would Centennial Church look like if each of us were out for the interests of the others? What's your interest rate? If we know some people that have put this into practice, it's our moms, right? Boy, if anyone puts needs above themselves, moms, I don't know how you do it. Seriously, I look at the moms among us, I look at the moms that work on our staff, I don't know how you juggle it all. I don't know how you do it. Some of you are working, some of you are staying home, multiple kids, I don't know, no matter how you cut it, it's hard. You've got a master's degree, you've got this great uh, degree from a university and you're vacuuming the house. You're trying to keep things picked up. You're putting others' interests ahead of yourself. I mean, man, I know when I was a kid, I mean, I, I did not have an appreciation for this until I had kids. I just thought that my mom just wanted, I mean, she had nothing better to do than to drive me around, make sure there was food on the table. I, it never crossed my mind as a child. I wonder if my mom wants a little time out by herself. That, that never came through the, the paradigm of a child because a child thinks in terms of dependence, right? These children that were just up here, they're looking to mom and dad to do everything for me. But as we mature in our faith, we grow in dependence on God, but we also grow in interdependence on one another. Mom, what do you need? Can I help you? What would it look like if we took these verses serious in our marriage, in our church? There was another person that Paul is going to brag on here later as we get through chapter 2, someone who was really doing this, who was really genuinely caring for other people, and his name was Timothy. Look further down in chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Look at how he commends Timothy. Verse 20, he says, I have no one like him, Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. You hear those words of commendation there? Those are high words of esteem. I'm ascending Timothy to you because I have no one else like this guy who will be genuinely concerned for you and your welfare, who will ask you what's going on, who will father you and mother you in your spiritual journey. No one else like him. In verse 21, everyone else is seeking their own interest, not the interest of Jesus Christ. Timothy 
had a genuine concern for people. He was a genuine shepherd. He was a genuine caregiver. Are you? Am I? What's your interest rate? Of course, our moms have modeled this for us. High esteem here for Timothy in this. But the greatest model of it all comes in verses 5 through 11, right? And that surprise that the Lord of the universe would model the utmost example of servanthood. Look at verses 5 and 11 through me. Here's the ultimate. Here's the best example of what humility looks like, what service looks like. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Some translations say, have this mind or have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There's some deep theological truth here, but he, he, he's giving this deep theological truth to drive home the point of service. This Jesus, our Savior, he was in the form of God. He is equal with God, being in the very form or nature of God. He didn't hang on to his rights. He didn't hang on to his status. But instead, what he did was he took on the form not just of a human, he became human, but he took also the form of a servant. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How did he empty himself? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The God who had all equality with the Father became a servant, became in the likeness of men. And not only did he become human, not only did he enter this world in Christmas as fully human and fully God. But verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, but death on a cross. The best picture of humility is deity and humanity. Jesus. The best picture we have of servanthood, the best picture we have of humility is Jesus, the God of the universe, the master who becomes the servant for others. There is nothing, nothing in deity that has need of humility. If you are God, you exist. You should, you should be worshiped. You have no need to display humility, but only in Jesus, only in Christianity, do we have a God who's not only great, who's not only awesome and powerful, the creator of all things, but we have a God who is also, get this, humble. Humble by becoming a human and humble by taking the punishment we deserve for our sins and taking them to the cross. What humility, what grace, what service. Servants serve their masters, but masters don't serve their servants, but Jesus did. The master became our servant. Man, if I'm Jesus and I come to earth, I'm like, okay, guys, I've come here for you, but this washing feet thing, don't think so. I've seen your feet. I've seen how much you walk in the dirt. I'm not going to wash your feet. But Jesus, 
The master of all became a servant and literally washes the feet of his disciples. And if I'm Jesus, I'm saying, no, no. That below my pay grade, beneath me. But the God of the universe became a servant and not only became a servant, but washed feet, something beneath him. And if that is the case, if that was not beneath Jesus, our Savior, let me ask us this question. What is beneath you and I? What is it that you faced last week that you might be facing this way? You say, I'm not going to do that. That's beneath me. And I am the pastor of this church. I am not going to do that. Man, I'm the manager of this division. I'm the vice president here. I'm a sales rep. I don't do that. That's beneath me. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, like Jesus who had every right in the world to stay in heaven and in heavenly glory and forfeited his rights to come to this earth as a servant and serve unto death. What's your interest rate? Do you see the needs of others or is all your time, all your money, all your prayers, all your effort on me, myself, and I? And again, I say each of us wants to have depth of relationship. Each of us wants to be connected to one another in a deep, significant way, at least to a few others. How do we do that? The foundation of that unity, the foundation of that depth is humility through service. What's your interest rate? Maybe it needs to begin by just uh, praying here in a moment. Lord Jesus, show me the people that you have sovereignly put in my path that I can serve, that I can serve better, that I can notice at work that need someone to take an interest in them. Someone that's hurting in our community group within Centennial Church, how I can serve, how I can give to others. What's your interest rate? Secondly, what's beneath you? Is it working in the nursery? Because we've got people that run divisions and run companies and have master's degrees that sit in here on Sunday and hold babies that's not beneath them. What's beneath you? And if washing feet and dying for sinners was not beneath the Son of God, our Savior, not much could be beneath me. Maybe you've heard the old phrase, everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. It starts with the small things, right? Let me help you. Let me take the kids. Let me give you some time alone so you can rest. Seems like you've been kind of down. How can I serve you? How can I pray for you? Will you pray with me? Father God, we desperately want deeper relationships with those that are in our lives and we love and um, we're held back by pride. We want to let people think that we have it all together and we don't. None of us do. Lord, I pray that you would break us of our pride and give us a humility uh, to say where we need help and to see other people where they need help. 
pray that you would help us to put away our pettiness, put, it, put away our preferences, to really be the church, to really be the unified community, to really experience the oneness that you desire for your church. Jesus, we thank you so much that you did not cling to your rights, but that you came as a servant to serve us so that we could be not only your servants, but your sons and daughters. We worship you, Jesus. Help us to worship you this week. It's in your beautiful name we pray.